Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Greetings and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. This is Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. I'm so glad you've joined us for another episode. Since 2014, modern advanced militaries have seemed to shift away from NATO-style operations, such as those that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s, and towards a model of working through local groups to counter terrorist threats. But these moves, framed around a minimum appetite for risk and privileging short-term objectives, may have serious and unforeseen strategic consequences. To explore this topic, I'm joined today by Emily Knowles, who is the program director of the Oxford Research Group's Remote Warfare Program, which is an independent organization based in London. Their group's mission is to conduct research and engage with policymakers on issues related to how militaries respond to conflict and instability. Emily, welcome to the War Room. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with a definition. Um, As I said in the introduction, we've talked a little bit about the changes in warfare since 2014, which is a pretty recent change. Um, But this is what you all describe as remote warfare. Can you talk a little bit more about how you define it and and how this concept came to be? Absolutely. And I hate to be responsible for adding yet another term into what is already a very acronym soup heavy industry of defense and security. I know that there are lots of different ways of describing this kind of trend towards working more through partner forces, especially when it comes to like low intensity conflict, the special operations community have a whole bunch of terms for this. Um, But I think what's really important for us is that we wanted to encapsulate the full range of support that we're providing to partners on the ground. It's not just drones or ISR support. Um, it's a lot of like training, advising, equipping, working in command and control rooms, um, which I guess on its most involved end, if you look at the anti-ISIS coalition, is really a, a very joint, very prominent operation between sort of NATO partners who've been running the air component of the campaign in support of local forces on the ground who've been um, moving against ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria. But you've also got a kind of a more discreet end of that spectrum, which we still count as remote forms of engagement, right? So you've got the training and equipping that we're doing of troop contributing countries to Amazon in Somalia, for example, where we're not directly involved in an air campaign. Um, We have a few boots on the ground in Somalia itself, training the Somali National Army. The US are running some independent counterterrorism operations, but the majority of the effort itself is run by troop contributing countries with very little sort of kinetic support from from Western partners. So you've got this kind of whole range of ways that we've seen uh, defense and security practitioners move away from relying on deploying large numbers of their own boots. Um, so the remote kind of speaks to geographic, but also strategic distance, especially that kind of that will to pursue uh, Western counterterrorism aims, but without the deployment of large numbers of their own boots okay. on the ground. Um, can you talk maybe a little bit about how this idea might be different from, say, proxy war in the Cold War? Because that seemed yeah. to be another time in which, say, Americans and Soviets obviously had strategic interests around the world and were using 
partners and local forces, um, often without an American face yeah. or a Soviet face. And I think I think it's a really important historical context to understand, but it's also one that I don't feel really encapsulates the nature of the partnerships that we have on the contemporary battlefield. So if you look at kind of historical perspectives of, of proxy warfare, um, because there was that that real distance, the kind of there was an overarching strategic aim, which was, you know, either counter the Soviet Union right. or or promote a particular um, political power over another. But there was less kind of interest in actually tactically, operationally, how those troops were going to engage on the okay. battlefield. So the partnerships that we have now with local forces, it's not a kind of, it's not a given that uh, Western partners are um, higher up in the chain of command to to local forces. We're One giving the, direction to local forces. Yeah, or... right. So what we saw a lot in in like the counter ISIS campaign, for example, was the UK was providing a lot of support to Iraqi forces in terms of planning operations or providing advice and a steer on how to conduct operations. But at the end of the day, it was the Iraqis themselves who were responsible for mm -hmm. deciding which direction they were going to go and which targets they were going to hit. And sometimes those are at odds with. Absolutely. That Western was one of the partners, lessons right? that came out uh, the most strongly was that we're not really very set up for that style of, of mm -hmm. interaction. Um, especially when we're providing planning support to partners. One of the things that we kept getting back from from British commanders was, you know, we're really good at coming up with plans. But we need to build some slack into that system that either allows for Iraqi input like earlier on in the day or that accounts for the fact that, you know, we might have this great plan for going east. But if the Iraqis want to go west, they're going west. Right. We have to have a plan for that as well. It can't just be then a scramble to catch up with the changing yeah. situation on the ground. So for me, this it's very much not a proxy relationship, which I think is quite important to emphasize mm -hmm. because it's almost at the root of some of the complexities for this for Western militaries sure. today. It also seems like in what you were saying that that sometimes this, the larger strategic questions may be hidden or not um, at the forefront of consideration, whereas in proxy wars, in the Cold War in particular, that central ideological conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States is in fact at the center of most strategic mm. level decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we found a real um, challenge when we were trying to run research and, and field research and workshops on the effectiveness of this style of warfare because we would always spend at least the first day-long session kind of going well what are the aims what like, is it that we're we actually trying, trying to, do? to do so how do we tell whether we're meeting those objectives or not because there's obviously there's there's a, a kind of a narrow counter-terrorism objective of going you know well we need to degrade isis as a force or al-shabaab or boko haram or the taliban or al-qaeda but Aside from that, we have a lot of big strategy flying around with the UK and, and its partners as well about, you know, longer term security, prospects for security sector reform um, in the countries where we're engaging. But our activities don't really match that. So trying to work out actually what the priorities are, what the longer term vision is, um, is quite a challenge because otherwise you end up just kind of evaluating these operations on the basis of, you know, is ISIS now less strong than it was when we right. started the campaign? Yeah. Does this action make sense in this context on this day without maybe right. fitting it into this broader picture? So this, I think, leads us nicely into the sort of next set of questions that I'd like to, to think through, which is about why this shift has occurred and what we think um, we as in like Western um, sort of advanced militaries think we will get out of mm. it. And it seems to me that we have the idea that this type of warfare working with and through local partners, not having a lot of um, sort of American or British 
uh, NATO troops on the ground will be um, sort of lower profile, cleaner, cheaper, easier, and that it'll, like you said, it'll do something. So maybe we can go through each of those, and you've called them myths, Mm. I think, in turn. So to that'll sort of maybe give away the answer. But what is it possible that these can be done in secret or lower profile? Yeah, I think it's a really important question as to the factors that we see driving this sort of approach to give you an answer as to, you know, whether it's hitting those objectives or not. Because, of course, with technological change, this this style of operation has become much more accessible. The advent of drone technology has allowed a form of kind of distant ISR that that does replace to a certain extent the need to have as many troops on the ground. Um, We've also had some hard lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan about the importance of not replacing a local force with a NATO force because that handover then still from NATO control to Mm -hmm. local control is a really hard one to manage. So I'm going to talk mostly about political risk and those drivers now, but it's not to say that there aren't other factors that play into this as well. But I think one of the biggest things that we've really seen, especially in the rhetoric in 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 the UK, but also among its partners in recent years, since the end of big campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, has been, you know, a hesitance in national capitals to bear the political, economic uh, costs and political costs, especially of of kind of large um, national engagements, especially in counterterrorism, which you know, we we have a hard time selling to the public as as a pressing concern. I think everyone can see when there are attacks happening in London that it's an issue. Um, But does that mean that they would support a large boots on the ground style operation in Somalia to counter al-Shabaab? Probably not. So you have policymakers kind of caught between these two things, right? First, the, the kind of the credible threat still of allowing terrorist groups to proliferate in areas where partners are weak. Um, There are very kind of low chances of of regional and local forces being able to tackle the problem Mm -hmm. or being willing to tackle the problem in a way that we think suits our interests but wanting to engage nonetheless so you get kind of this this myth of remote warfare as a way of doing this both kind of discreetly um so in the uk it uses a lot of um instruments of military power that don't come under the same scrutiny in parliament as combat deployments of uk troops would so providing security assistance to partners isn't hugely transparent our special forces aren't overseen by any external committee um when you're providing intelligence support intelligence sharing um to partners that's not something that's overseen in the same way as it would if it was a major kind of combat operation from the uk side So you get this kind of idea that it's possible to do this without rankling parliament or the general public. And to a certain extent, you can see, you know, there have been no large anti-war protests in London, um, but a kind of embarrassing defeat in 2013 from our government who wanted to start airstrikes in Syria against ISIS. There haven't been major disruptions to to UK um, remote warfare operations. But what we have seen instead is kind of this... What we see is a, is, a, is a too simple then relationship between good strategy and a secret strategy. And this has a whole load of, of kind of unintended consequences that can occur, especially when, you know, we're living in, a, in an information age where access to information isn't controlled by the government. We've had lots of um, images of special forces, for example, operating in Syria being released to the BBC. We've got a lot of local narratives about UK engagement on the ground that kind of stoke this um, this suspicion in in the UK that you know the government isn't levelling with them, isn't being honest mm-hmm. about international military engagement. And the military hasn't done a whole lot to push back on this idea that the more secret you can be, the more strategic that is. And that's despite 
a lot of military strategic documents that talk about the importance of the battle for the narrative. And linked to that is this idea that this is a kind of clean form of warfare. Um, we've seen the UK and other international coalition partners very reticent to actually talk about the civilian impact of the anti-ISIS campaign, for example. Right. The UK has only conceded one casualty throughout the course of the uh, anti-ISIS campaign yeah. and I mean, in, in Syria. The, the US is, it keeps changing sort of how it's counting and reporting right. civilian casualties and the effects on civilian sort of economy and society. Yeah, and even well. where the US has been much better in terms of reporting um, reporting its numbers of civilian casualties, it's still, if you look at the metrics compared to Afghanistan and, mm -hmm. and civilian deaths, um, from airstrikes then and, and the deaths that are conceded over Iraq and Syria, you're looking at a claim that, you know, we're a hundred times more precise than we when we were in Afghanistan, which seems kind of incredulous, especially because on in the same breath, we're spending a lot of time talking about the complexities of urban warfare, the fact that we can't really see much right. from the air only, not having your own troops on the ground is a... Is a um, is a complicating factor when it comes to actually understanding your environment. So you've got these kind of two things existing in parallel, this idea that urban warfare is complicated and very difficult to see, but also at the same time that it hasn't had a significant impact on civilians right. in places like Mosul and Raqqa. Is the idea that it is a cleaner form of warfare also tied to a lower number of casualties for allied forces yeah and i think that's where it really has had a big impact i mean we've had very few u.s uh or uk personnel sort of um killed in those operations mm -hmm. in the past couple of years i think we've we've not even formally conceded one uk um, um military casualty uh there have been some reports of uk special forces casualties in syria but the, certainly that ex that direct exposure to risk for our personnel has been reduced but as a counter to that, like the the risk that's been um, passed on to our partners has been really damaging for our interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at forces like the Iraqi counterterrorism services, so the Iraqi special forces, which the U.S. spent a huge amount of time and money training, equipping, advising, mentoring throughout the course of that campaign, because they were the island of, you know, good military practice in Iraq at the time that ISIS was advancing, they were then used in every single operation for many things that they weren't designed to do and the the attrition rate and and the fatality rate there has been huge i think the last report that i read from the u.s said that they may have lost upwards of 50 percent of their personnel wow in the anti-isis battle and you go well you know if it took us 10 years to build that force and nurture that force and it took about and it was 10 incredibly, months yeah, to, resource intensive to do right it. and it was fo followed all of the kind of the correct paths going from you know those guys shadowing U.S. special forces for a long time, then some joint operations moving through to the U.S. shadowing Iraqi-led operations to the point that by the time that um, we left, uh, they were running their own in operations pretty independently with limited international support. So they were kind of a success story. But then you look at how that pans out when you're trying to operate this kind of remote campaign and you're not mm -hmm. there in large numbers yourself. Um, it passes the risk on to local forces and it passes the risk on to local populations. Right. And I think that's where we haven't yet managed to find a good balance between leveling those criticisms and concerns with the idea that this is a clean form of war. Yeah, so it reduces risk in one area, but it, it increases it for, for others. Um, and also that has to be a strategic level question about um right what are the what are the acceptable risks and and who who assumes those yeah. risks um 
capture. We also think, I really think one possible myth is that this is a cheaper form of warfare, right? Deployments are expensive. Um, personnel are expensive. Um, logistics are expensive. So is, is remote warfare cheaper? So that's a really hard question to answer. We've been trying to crack through it for, for a number of months now. So a major problem that we have in the UK sense is that we actually have very little data about many of the things that remote warfare relies on to go on. Now, we don't know how much money we're spending on our security assistance programs, for example. That data isn't released in the same way as it is in the US. So we can't kind of look at a case study like Nigeria and go, oh, well, over the last 10 years, we've spent X amount building the capacity mm -hmm. of Nigerian armed forces. Um, has that been a good investment considering the the additional support they then needed to counter Boko Haram? You can't kind of run those cost adjustments. And I think that, you know, it, it makes intuitive sense to say, well, it's obviously cheaper because of all of the factors that you mentioned, big deployments are expensive. Um we're not using the same number of personnel, the same amount of kit. Um, but at the same time, we, we just we don't have the information through which to kind of to look at that. So I think it's really interesting that you, you tend to end up on in an argument with people who will, who will believe on the basis of no evidence, either very strongly that it is very cheap or that it is very costly. Mm -hmm. And the is very costly people tend to point to the fact that, you know, we don't know how long this is going to take. It might just mean that we're indefinitely engaged. Endless right. war is a very expensive thing. Um, and the, the, the people who will argue that it's cheap are like, well, you know, it's very limited um, in terms of our direct costs, in terms of personnel, equipment. But we actually don't have we the just picture. don't know. We just don't yeah. know, which which fascinates me in itself because I'm like, well, how does anyone know? You get a lot of arguments for and for and against. Right. But well, even in even measuring the costs of conventional engagements is extraordinarily difficult, right? What do you what do you include? What do you leave out? Um, and then here you have the question of relative mm. cost as well. Is it cheap or expensive? Isn't it absolute? question that's a relative question cheap in comparison to what right mm. not doing anything well no it's more costly than that yeah. um or expensive and compared to what you know massive troop deployments for a decade um iraq and afghanistan right like you said big iraq big afghanistan mm. um so what are you comparing it to and i think all of that should be empirical but it's yeah tricky to figure yeah. out and I think as well, because one of the complexities of this is that it's then in the US system, but in the UK system also, because it's a kind of knitted together form of military engagement, it comes out of a lot of different organizations, pots of money, pots yeah. of money like how much of this for us is funded out of the CSSF, which is a joint funding pot between the MOD, DFID and, and the FCO, how much of this is funded by defense itself. Um, where does that come from? The intelligence budget, we don't know. Um, so, yeah, rather than being a big kind of an operation that has its own budget line in itself, because of the kind of ad hoc nature through which we pull together the different capabilities that we're going to provide, actually then wading back through and trying to work out who's spending what in what areas is is quite an impossible task sure. at the moment. Yeah. So one more um, sort of myth maybe to, to explore a little bit is this idea about what kind of military will be optimized to produce these effects to engage in this style of warfare that you're talking about. Um, since 2014, as in addition to this trend, I think we've also seen a trend for um, the American and, and to some extent the British military too, 
moving toward or back toward sort of major combat operations as a focus mm-hmm. uh, against near peer competitors or fighting sort of large scale conventional conflicts. And the assumption might be that this style of engagement will be a sort of lesser included capability for militaries that are optimized to do another thing. Um, has your work sort of addressed that problem at all? Yeah, we touch on this. What we do see is a, is a real myth that, um, a military that's well prepared for major war fighting will be able to do this as a kind of default, that it's easier to scale back to this style of operation than it would be to have a force that was optimized for remote warfare to be scaled up in the face of a, of a near peer threat. And I think it's one of the things that I'd sort of hope that we'd learned from, from our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, that things like counterinsurgency can't just be like conjured up out of existing military capabilities. It's a different mindset and skill set. Um, it requires different training and, and preparation. Um, and yet we kind of see this shift now towards looking at what might be the most dangerous threat, so near-peer competitors, but kind of at the absence of wanting to put a lot of um, intellectual energy into developing this sort of capability. I think like the overriding thing that we took from a lot of our interviews within the British Armed Forces was that this was a lower priority task. And it feels like it when you're on the ground doing field research in Afghanistan or Iraq or speaking to the guys deployed out in, in Kenya or Mali, you get that sense that they know that what they're doing is is kind of it's meaningful for them for their careers, but it's not seen as an mm-hmm. overwhelming priority for um, for the military as a whole. And while you don't prioritize this as an actual task, um, it feels unlikely to me that we're ever going to excel at it. And I think there's a real danger in there too of if this is the most likely task. If you look at the range of political, technological, economic factors that's pushing us towards this form of engagement now. Um, it feels like none of that's going to go away, at least in the near to midterm, that this is going to continue to be a form of engagement that we see the US, the UK and its allies being really called upon to deliver. Um, and if we kind of fail to to deliver well on that um, consistently, I don't see where the, that groundswell of political and economic support for our armed forces is going to come from that would be needed to step up capabilities for a near peer fight. I think like one of the major things is that we're just not set up for specialization, for long-term deployments, for real understanding of a lot of these areas where we're trying to run partner operations. We've got a kind of two-year rotation cycle within the military, but also within um, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and others that doesn't really permit people to generate the sort of understanding that you would ideally need to be able to run an effective partner operation to understand kind of the dynamics on the ground, um, to protect against some of the risks that your intelligence from local forces is open to manipulation or that you're working with groups who have a lot of other interests or, or strategic interests in play. Um, you really do need to have absorbed a lot of information about partner forces and the wide range of partner forces as well to be able to do this mm-hmm. effectively. And we're not set up to do that. And and unless we kind of decide that this is a priority task that we want to change the way that we deploy or develop at least a portion of our militaries, I, d- I don't see us getting much better. And there've been some small scale efforts, I think. So in the US with the SFABs, um, we've got a kind of... Um, 
something like that in the UK on our own scale. So um, specialised infantry battalions. So it's not a whole brigade. So it's not a whole brigade because <laughs> that would take quite a chunk out of what we've already got. Um, who are meant to be trying to kind of break down those barriers, but they're right. very new and it's going to take, you know, a long time to see whether that's effective or not. Sure. And, it, and I think the, the debates in the US have been much the same, which is the even with the SFABs and the, the standing up of those, figuring out how they're going to be used. And you do see this pull um, between that mission and major combat operations. And we've seen yeah. revisions to US doctrine and other things that would suggest um, a, a real tension yeah. in in how the United States is thinking about conflict in the in the future. Yeah. So these initiatives from from my part are only going to succeed if they're given that political and military political support to grow. Right. I've heard from a lot of people that you know, oh, our army's been ruined by our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now we've got a counterinsurgency force. We don't need a counterinsurgency force. We need a major war fighting force. But it feels like we go through a boom-bust cycle every time of kind of discarding lessons from, from the past or even from contemporary theatres to, to prepare for something new and something different. And that, it for, for my mind, wastes an opportunity to, to really hone in on, you know, what have we learned? What are we right. learning from what we're currently doing? Surely or what if the answer is we really have to be able to do both? What right. does a military that is designed to do both what does that look like? Yeah, because it's kind of terrifying and our, our force development doesn't work like that. I mean, we kind of, you look ahead and you go, well, actually, it's 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 really difficult to tell, you know, what the next threat is going to be. It could be anything from the next machete war on the African continent all the way up to nuclear confrontation on the Korean peninsula. And you go... Well, that's a really wide range of things right. that we need to prepare for in some meaningful way. Surely we need to choose, we need to we need to prioritize, we need to optimize our forces in some direction. And there is some of that. But I think that meaning that you then kind of direct your entire intellectual energy into one threat or one form of threat with this idea that, OK, well, we focus on the most dangerous end of the spectrum and we can work down from there really isn't something that we've seen working from a historical perspective mm -hmm. and as you say, if it, if it comes out that we really do need to be able to do both things, then we need to prioritize both things. Right. And that means, you know, resources. It means working out how our promotions and kind of placement cycle can support the development of that sort of capability and providing that the space to grow. Excellent. So I think we've already started to talk about the considerations at the strategic level, what strategists need to be thinking about. So prioritization, optimizing military force, force development is clearly one aspect of strategic level thinking that has to go in what are the other things um, that you think strategists should really be thinking about what questions should they be asking when it comes to this style of warfare I think I'd be really interested to see their own analysis of whether they think that these contemporary operations have been a success or not and what they tell us about you know which partners we choose to work with which areas we try to use this style of of war fighting what are the conditions for this to be successful? Because we set out with the, the very high aspiration at the beginning to kind of basically be able to reduce our analysis down to something that looked like, okay, well, if your problem looks like A, B or C um, and your aim looks like X, Y or Z, then this is a good style of operation for you. This, these are the conditions under which this might deliver. Or it's like a grab bag and you can just sort of mix and match and pull right? what you need. With the understanding that it's not going to work everywhere in all uh, environments. 
but the problem that we we came up against is that we're trying bits and pieces of this in such a wide range of different environments where the factors on the ground are so different, like the capability of your partners, whether you're working through state forces or non-state actors, whether you're working in an environment that contains other major powers like Russia or Iran, like where you're trying to do this, what you're trying to do is a big question. Um, so I think, you know, we need to dedicate a bit of intellectual energy on, on a strategic planning level to kind of go through um, contemporary operations and go, well, has this worked for us? Under what conditions has this worked for us? You know, it it should be intuitively clear that this isn't always going to work, that building a partner force relies on certain um, attributes being present on the ground mm-hmm. and that they're only going to be able to deliver a certain number of strategic aims. But I don't I don't feel a current of intellectual energy going into trying to answer those questions. Sure. And I mean, we can go so far through our kind of external analysis, through working through workshops or field research or bringing people in to speak to us. But at the end of the day, this needs to be a kind of institutional effort to go, if this is a style of warfare, if this is an approach then we need to understand it. We need to have doctrine for it. We need to understand, you know, when this is applicable and when this isn't. And at the moment, I mean, one of the major quotes that we kept getting back from within the UK military is that this doesn't feel like it was a conscious decision to move in the direction of this sort of approach to warfare. It was more that this was kind of what was left once we ran through. It felt accidental or... Right. It was a bit more ad hoc. So we had things like, you know, this is um, strategic sleepwalking or like mm. once you run through the list of permissions and restrictions, this is kind of what's left at the bottom of what the barrel is what you can do rather than what you should do. Um which is a big kind of red flag to anyone that's interested in strategy and strategy driving right. military activity, right? So I think redressing that, actually kind of going, well, this is an approach that we've been trying. Sort of pulling it out of the realm of inertia and sleepwalking yeah. and just doing the next thing because you think it's the thing that has to be Right, done. asking those questions about is this what we should do rather than is this what we can do in this particular instance. And that's both from within the military and the political system because until the military really understands the limits and the opportunities of this as an approach, they can't speak truth to power either when they're asked to mm-hmm. engage in this way in a new country or a new environment. Right. And at so, the same time, yeah. it seems like the political masters need to make some clear decisions and have some clear conversations about what strategic aims are, what the policy guidance is, what are we trying to accomplish. And they probably need to be told no more, right? I mean, we've we've seen in a lot of the environments where we're working in, like when we were across in NATO Resolute Support, for example, interviewing the international military personnel there, that they had a mandate to train, advise, assist local Afghan forces. But the majority of the the troop contributing countries to that mission didn't have the permissions to actually go out Mm -hmm. into the field with their Afghan counterparts or they were restricted to the HQ itself. So you kind of go from a political sense, if you're like, well, this is our level of risk and our acceptance of the risk then at a certain point we need to have pushback from the military saying, well, you actually can't do it. If the, if those are the red lines, if these that are you the push around, parameters, if these are the stipulations, yeah, there is no point you being there because, you know, there's, there is no point just having a load of NATO troops deployed out somewhere that can't actually do anything. They're at more risk in Kabul than they are back in their mm-hmm. home bases. And unless they're able to provide something meaningful, which isn't just, you know, um, fulfilling quotas or sending right. a message, um, then we need to be a lot more honest with with a political decision makers about you know what that force is going to achieve um 
you can't go from over 100,000 troops deployed in Afghanistan to down to sort of roughly 10,000 while we were out there and not change the strategic objectives meaningfully in any way or not kind of take into account what you've actually got to work with. And I think, you know, we're allowing ourselves to um, to go unchallenged in terms of saying, you know, well, actually, does this, what does this deliver? Can this deliver? What permissions do we need? What partners do we need? If we don't have those permissions and those partners, then can we actually do it? Should we actually do anything? I know that, you know, choosing to do nothing is never a... Um, a fashionable thing in defense and security and and saying no is also not a terribly popular thing to do either right the the culture says yes we can do more with less Um, but those conversations about aligning objectives or ends end states goals whatever you want to call them along with the resources that you Mm -hmm. have the risk you're willing to assume um, that is the heart of strategic thinking Um, perhaps we need a little bit more of that yeah, and I mean, you know, there are obviously concerns on other levels about saying no and the budgetary implications of that or the implications of another service stepping in and saying yes. And we know that there are a lot of, you know, more of the territorial fights that happen at a lower level. But we really see that, you know, perhaps especially, but certainly even in times of budgetary and political constraints, that it's it's important for troops to be able to speak truth to power about what they can actually achieve. Um because otherwise, as we say, like in the long term, if, if you're going to deploy anyway and try to do something because it's always better than doing nothing, but you don't actually manage to achieve anything that looks that meaningful, um, it erodes over a longer time kind of political congressional support for your activities abroad anyhow. So it's kind of like it, it's it's just pushing that risk into the longer term and it's making it harder to manage because... We don't know then, you know, if, if we carry on trying to do remote warfare operations for the next five to ten years and we don't have any, you know, resounding success stories that emerge from that, whether Parliament or Congress will pull that entire level of activity from us anyway, right? I mean, you need to be thinking as well strategically about balancing that will to do something and to try things with the kind of the strategic risks to the military as an institution of not performing well at the tasks that they're that they've said that they can deliver even if they think that they can't deliver those things great so emily thanks so much uh for coming in and talking with me today i've learned a lot and i've got a lot of new things to think about new questions to ask um, students and i'm really looking forward to following what your uh, group continues to to come up with no thank you very much for inviting me in And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.